The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to get an update on tech stocks. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Ewell, who oversees our technology coverage. Welcome, Alex. It's been a busy few weeks in tech land, right? It has. Hey, good to be here, Lauren. Good to have you. So it has been a great day on Wall Street for tech stocks. The NASDAQ composite is up more than 1% and it topped 12,000 this morning. Do you think the market has bottomed, Alex, or is this just what they call a bear market rally? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those questions that if you check with us in six months or a year, we'll we'll, we'll know the answer. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, it feels a little bit better today than it did uh, roughly 10 days ago. Um, the NASDAQ is up about 7% from its May 24th low, um, but we're still down 25% from November's highs. So whether that May 24th number becomes the bottom and it's a number and it's sort of, you know, the start of, of a, what becomes a, a bull market, um, at least for the NASDAQ, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we know yet. Um, but, you know, there are some, we could talk through, there are some indications that we've gotten from recent earnings that, that, that do provide some amount of good news, or at least put, maybe put aside the worries, um, that drove the NASDAQ down as much as you know, 30%, um, in the last six months. So I guess the way I'd look at it is to say that a lot of speculation has been washed out of the market, but we'll have to wait and see how the economy does and, and how the Fed does, what the Fed does. In yeah. The yeah. I mean, I, I think the good news, and we can talk more specifically about some recent earnings. I think the good news is that it feels like in the last two weeks or so, especially with tech, that the investors aren't kind of looking for every excuse to sell. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, they've overlooked some bad news and found good news kind of between the lines of these recent earnings reports. And 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 so investors are reacting in a maybe more, pre- well, I don't know if I'd say predictable, but in a, in a more optimistic way to some of the earnings notes. So we have seen some big moves up on earnings um, in the last couple of weeks, not the this has sort of been the, the the last wave of earnings season for kind of the cloud companies and some of the hardware companies. Um, and so that's where I think the good news has come in and, and maybe provides some hope that this is more than just a bear market rally. So speaking of good news, we got some from salesforce.com yesterday and the stock has been popping on it. Tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah. So Salesforce was up 10% yesterday. Uh, Salesforce is one of the earliest cloud pioneers. You know, they're different from from the, the, the public cloud companies of like uh, Microsoft Azure and Amazon Web Services in that they actually sell applications based on the cloud. Um, and they are one of the earliest companies to sort of take um, database, more legacy database software and, 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 and turn it to the cloud. Um, 
and it began you know, CRM or uh, customer relationship management, those tools used by sales people to basically track customers is what Salesforce has been doing for uh, more than a decade now, right? And they were at one time, one of these hugely expensive companies, crazy valuations, and they've sort of grown into their valuation. Um, and uh, so they, they're, they're, they were up 10% yesterday on their earnings report. Um, and it was an interesting one because they beat for the quarter, but their outlook was weaker than expected. And you would have imagined that to be seen negatively by investors, but the but they kind of quickly explained that the the lower guidance was all about foreign exchange and the stronger dollar. And you know, the stronger dollar doesn't really matter to companies that are only focused in the US, but it starts getting more complicated for companies that have international sales. And when you convert it back, it becomes a drag. So that hurt Salesforce's uh, guidance. But because they explained it as sort of this, this foreign exchange issue that they really don't have any control over and doesn't speak to the operations, investors overlooked it and, and the stock was up 10%. And I, I, I think the, um, the key thing there that investors liked was that Salesforce is, is growing or expanding its margins right now. And that's something to watch for going forward, I think, because we've come off of this growth at any cost um, market. And investors are no longer really interested in that right now. And, and they are focusing on profitability more. And so if a company like Salesforce, which for so long was growth at any cost, can now show expanding profit margins, that, that's a good sign. And I think something that investors will cheer. So most of the big tech companies operate overseas and the dollar has been very strong this year. Sometimes the currency helps you. Sometimes it hurts you. Yeah. But that's just the way it goes and it doesn't necessarily affect the underlying business. Well, so, yeah. And, and I don't know if you want, I mean, we can talk about, we had Microsoft on our list to talk about, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about that because they also mentioned currency, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So they put out a filing this morning and they cut their, um, they cut their, revenue outlook for the quarter by about $500 million. Now it sounds like a lot. I'm pretty sure though their guy, their outlook, their their quarter is somewhere around 50 billion. So it's a pretty small number. The stock was down about 3% on it. But once again, it was the company specifically said in this filing that the, that the change was all related to, uh, to foreign exchange. And um, so it's interesting that that stock, that Microsoft is off on that news, um, or at least they were last I looked. Um, our colleague Tay Kim pointed pointed out that you know maybe that should actually be seen as a good thing. So here's Microsoft is cutting their forecast by a little bit, but they're not mentioning any broader macro weakness. The only thing they mentioned was foreign exchange. And so if you read between the lines, maybe you should maybe that should actually be seen as a good thing because if they were cutting, if the only reason they are cutting right now specifically for foreign exchange, that means they're not cutting for, for macro weakness, um, which has been one of the worries, you know, around spending and such and economic. I think that's a good point. So maybe this is a little bit of a, of a small slide that, that will, uh, will turn around. I think this is the tech call, but investors in all sectors ought to be listening for currency comments when second quarter earnings come out. Yeah. I I agree. I guess the question is, and I'm no currency expert, is sort of as an investor, what do you do with it? Because do you You go to Europe, Alex, you take a foreign vacation. There you go. So maybe that's the best way to hedge it. You just you just travel some and become a tourist. But I I don't know as an investor that you really want to make big decisions with your portfolio based on that. And I think that's how the market is reading it. Um, 
So we'll, we'll see, but I think you're right. It will be, it will definitely, it will be in this place where it becomes an issue for a while. So moving on, you are a dog lover. And I know this because I can hear the Yule family pooch barking during our morning meetings. And uh, yes. I keep thinking she's giving you stock picks or maybe market predictions. I'm not really sure. But that leads me to Chewy. It's the e-commerce pet food company. The stock was up 17% today. Why are investors barking up this particular tree, so to speak? <laughs> good, good one. Um, well, so for one, this is also the question of, is this just a relief rally? So 17% move is big but the stock is still down even after that, something like 50% year to date. And I think Chewy has been caught up in two things, two related things, right? One is the coming off of its pandemic gains when suddenly people had no choice but to buy all of their pet supplies online and Chewy had this huge rally. It became kind of part of that stay at home trade. Um, and then it's, but, and then and on a related basis, it's been caught up in this downdraft for the broader e-commerce um, world, which, which is about, you know, return to stores and, and investors selling off these higher multiple names and, and just losing confidence in the e-commerce growth story. So um, I think that's been the issue for them. And then here they came out and had a pretty good quarter, you know, I, without getting into too many of the specifics, I was just looking through the transcript. Um, and, and one thing caught my eye that I just think is worth remembering when it comes to e-commerce, which has really struggled. And we've talked about in the newsroom whether e-commerce has kind of peaked and is e-commerce just becoming commerce, which gets much lower multiples overall than kind of the more traditional e-commerce company. But I think that the Chewy had one line in here that just really stood out to me when they talked about how um, in the first quarter, their auto ship customer sales, which I, you know, I believe are these, pre these subscription pre-programmed um, sales where you're pretty much signing up for food and such things that you need as a pet owner are now 72% of their sales, which they said, you know, which is a record for the company. So if you think about that, like that's extraordinary, actually. I think so. And and maybe there's something I'm missing there. I mean, I, I am not a, a, an expert on Chewy, but yeah, if you're going into the quarter where you sort of have already signed people up to 72% uh, and it's to the point that 72% of your sales are food and other neat special, you know, uh, regular type non-discretionary items that you need to keep your dog healthy that's pretty impressive and and you know dogs have long lives so if you figure a dog lives 10 or 15 years that's a, that's a pretty good position for chewy to be in um so it's very possible we're going to come back to e-commerce and start realizing that um that there is it is still a great business right with the pendulum may have swung too far now that said chewy is still losing you know still losing money um so I'm not sure it's a great stock for this environment, but um, but, they, but is it losing money because it's investing in the business? Well, I think so, and and logistics and all that. I mean, that's the question on e-commerce is whether one of the questions now is if sales, if it no longer has this this huge secular tailwind of people shifting from bricks and mortar to to e-commerce, all of the costs that are involved in e-commerce, like logistics, fulfillment, shipping, all those things, which investors overlooked because of the massive sales growth becomes a little more onerous. And um, I mean, sure, certainly that's been an issue for Amazon too over the years. And, and we've seen that. Um, so is there any chance a company like Chewy would also go into the bricks and mortar business? That's a good question. And I don't know, I don't know specifically the answer for that for Chewy. If we think back to before the pandemic, that was a huge trend, right? Every of every one of these direct to consumer companies uh, had started to open up stores. Um, 
to, to service uh, to service customers kind of where they were at. So I don't know about, I don't know the answer for Chewy. I mean, I know the Petco we use um, actually closed recently. Oh no. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to travel a little further. I think I have a, we're signed up to get food automatically, not from Chewy, but from Petco. So um what a subscription business. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a pretty a subscription business that's not going to go away, regardless of the economy. So, But it has to turn into profits eventually. Yeah. yeah. Or there will be troubles. So speaking of e-commerce, even Amazon stock has been swept up in the market's latest rally after a pretty miserable start to the year. Do you think this is finally the turn for e-commerce? What's behind the Amazon yeah, so I was just having this debate with uh, a few of our colleagues, but I did, you know, I was doing the math on Amazon going into today had been up for five straight days. And I sort of was shocked when I did the math to see that over those five days, it was up 17%. So that's a pretty substantial move for a really big company, right? But again, my, you know, my, my, my other colleagues point out that, well, it's just one of these route relief rallies doesn't mean much. Don't overthink it. I don't know if I fully agree with that. I mean, I think when a trillion dollar company moves 17% in five days, it's hard not to pay attention. Right. Um, but, uh, there. but, but so, you know, I, it's, there's some interesting things happening with Amazon. Um, we'll know more when they next report earnings. Uh, e-commerce has been slowing down and that's worried investors, even as their AWS cloud business has been doing quite well. But perhaps this is related to the company's stock split, um, which is coming on, which will be, which will go official on Monday, I believe, June. I, I was getting to that because we have a question from a listener, David, who wants to know, is Amazon a good buy on this last day before it's split? The stock is splitting 20 for one. You know, I guess, um, well, if you think the 17% move is already on the, the split, um, then I guess maybe maybe it's too late to trade that. But then I also say to myself, why well, I, I cannot in good conscience tell anyone to to trade on split news, right? I mean, I guess we've seen that that stocks generally do rally into and, and shortly after the split. But I guess the the more rational fundamental analysis part of me says that's you still shouldn't do it. Um, so I, I would not be buying Amazon because of the split right now. Um, that said, but I would. There, but there are other reasons potentially to buy it. Yeah, right. I mean, it's had it's it's down. I think um, it's down thirty six percent from its peak. So you know, if you believe in the long term power of Amazon, if you believe that investors have gotten too bearish on the future of e commerce and their ability to continue to gain share from other retailers, um, and that. You know, they're going to kind of skate by the regulatory issues, which they have so far for the most part, that this is probably as good a buying opportunity as you're going to get for Amazon, even even with the recent rally, because it's still down by more than a third. So I want to move on to the world of information technology, getting away from software to hardware. This business has held up really well of late. Despite lots of talk about an impending recession, it turns out that companies are spending on computers and related hardware. It's been good news for HP and for Dell. Tell us what's happening and why it's happening. Yeah, and this is maybe what I was getting to a little bit earlier with sort of some of the things we've seen in the last week or two that suggests that maybe this is a little more than just a a kind of 
um, relief rally and that there's some fundamental reasons for this. And, and part of, I think, what drove the, the last leg down of that violent sell-off for the NASDAQ in mid to late May was the, the thing that had been holding up, right, which was enterprise spending. I think investors started to worry uh, was starting to, to also soften and roll over. And, and that kind of was like, oh, my God. We're worried about the consumer and inflation and spending. And if now companies are going to start pulling back, that's going to be really bad and means we've got a lot further to fall. And I think maybe some of these recent earnings reports and Salesforce is one of them. Um, and then we've seen these good numbers from HP and Dell have pushed back on that worry a little bit. And so I think it's, it's possible that that's, that's helped in the balance. And so in the last week or so, we, as you noted, we've gotten good numbers from both HP and Dell, the PC makers, um, both beat their numbers. And it's not, it's while during the pandemic, the strength for those businesses came from this surprising rebound in PC sales from consumers who are working from home. And now that's kind of seems like that slowed down. And, and it's the businesses, the businesses that have picked it up from there and the fact that they're still buying PCs. And so that, that's, the fact, the fact that they posted good numbers and talked about continued demand from businesses, I think, is both really good for Dell and, and is good news for Dell and H, HP. And it's also good news for the broader market and, and the tech companies um, and maybe you know even beyond tech companies. So, um, you know, HP is super interesting. We've, I think, written positively about the, the stock several times in, over the last year. So it's up year, it's up five percent year to date, which makes it a real has made it a real haven. Um, but it's still a really cheap stock. So it's trading at less than nine times next year's earnings. Uh, the company is buying back a lot of stock. I don't think anyone expects huge growth from a computer, a PC maker going forward. But they've surprised in the last few years, and um, I think it's still definitely one to watch as, as long as we're in this market where investors are focused on on cheaper stocks hp certainly fits the bill isn't this a stock that warren buffett has been buying yes that is. Buffett watchers out there yeah yeah he has um and so that that certainly is an endorsement um and we should remember we're talking about the stock with the ticker hpq right and so that's the pc and printer maker and uh, not to be confused with hp enterprise those two companies split up uh you know five even more than five years ago um but that's another cheap stock, right? HP Enterprise is another really actually cheaper stock, I believe. It's trading at like seven times earnings and it sells hardware and services uh, directly to businesses. It's having a bad day, actually, because it did report weaker uh, results um, last night, I think. And and they are still having some issues. Uh, well, they're having issues with currency, like some of the other companies. And they also, I think, talked about some weakness from and, and troubles with logistics and supply chain issues. So for those following along, HPQ is the enterprise software company. That's the ticker. HPE is HP Enterprise. That's a different company that sells hardware and services directly to businesses. Yeah, HP, HPQ is the, is the PC and printer maker, right? The one right. that we right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. So another topic we've been talking about in the Barron's newsroom, these days the virtual newsroom, is whether this year's sell-off in tech stocks will stifle or delay innovation. And it seems to me the venture capital market is the link between the public markets and the great innovations of past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So perhaps you can summarize some of our conversations for Barron's live listeners. 
Yeah, and this is interesting to me because this is where the sell-off kind of gets real, right? Beyond just what it means for our portfolios, but more about what it means for our our future lives, really. Because if we think about how much technology has changed life in the last twenty years, um, or if we even go back to the before the dot-com crash, it's all come from this startup world, uh, which is out, which is behind closed doors to a degree, right? We're not seeing a daily, minute by minute updates that we get for public uh, technology stuff. Right. And we don't live in Silicon Valley and we're not immersed in the venture capital market yeah. and in the world of, of startups. Yeah. So I think the question is sort of, you know, to, to start with is what happens there when public stocks crash? And some of it maybe seem seems obvious, right? Um, but I think, you know, there's a, there is to some degree a lag um, and then it works its way through the system. One area that I think we should kind of start with is, is and to start, you know, is to look at recent IPO performance or the performance of recently IPO'd um, companies. Now, the IPO market has, the IPO market is pretty much dried up, so we're not yeah. seeing a lot of new issues in the last few months. But if we go back over the last, like, over, if we look at the performance of companies that have come public over the last two years, and that's tracked by this Renaissance IPO um, index, and they also have an e- uh, ETF on it. Over the last year, that index is down 50% versus what's basically a flat market at this point for the S&P 500. So, you know, that let's start there. IPO performance has been bad. That's not going to really, in addition to the volatility in the markets today, that performance is not going to encourage startups to go public. So what happens is, so that's where like the, the, um, that's where things start to get harder for for startups, even at the earliest stage, because you take away the IPO and you take away their exit strategy, you take away their exit strategy and you start compressing what these startups are worth and how much venture capital and other early investors want to get involved. Um, and we're, we're already seeing that. So, so our colleague, Eric Savitz, start to pull some kind of hints together because, again, it's it's harder to see in, in real time. But we've seen some big companies, uh, big private companies starting to reduce their valuation. Instacart, the grocery start, delivery startup is one of them. It cut its valuation recently by like 40%, still to a big number, $24 billion. Presumably that's going to look even worse if they, if they in fact go public. Um, and then there's some data showing that, um, you know, VC fundings, uh, the number of deals in venture in the venture capital market are down uh, about 12, 10 to 20% in recent months. Um, and we mentioned that, that just the general um, the IPO market has dried up. So, you know, it's not, it's not looking great. There's, there's some other data out there, which is interesting on how, private company stock is trading on these secondary exchanges where accredited investors and can buy stock from employees and other uh, early investors and startups. And Eric points out that um, in the last quarter of data we have, the average transaction price on those private stocks was down like 9%. Um, that's not a that's not a huge drop given how much the uh, that IPO index we talked about is down, but still, it's you know that that gap will probably close in, in the coming weeks. Suggest to me it hasn't fallen enough when you look at the IPO index and when you look at the Nasdaq. Exactly. So I think there's this lag, um, and and then so that so that's sort of the mechanics of it. And then I to come back to the bigger question is well, how much does it matter? Um, you know, I think the other side of this is that these kind of corrections and and 
crashes tend to really, and resets tend to really be good for, for long-term innovation. And, and they force the best ideas to kind of come to the surface while the other less good ideas are, are no longer propped up by all this excess capital sloshing around, right? And I mean, I think Google, Google's probably the, the, the obvious example that went public, uh, what, 2004, while the NASDAQ was still struggling and trying to make its 15-year recovery from the dot-com crash. We got the whole sharing economy sort of that started in, in those years. Uh, Facebook was growing in those years. So really our biggest innovations, um, and the iPhone, of course, right? So I don't think this means we're not going to get that innovation, and, and it might just be the the kind of reset we need to finally push the best ideas to the forefront. So only the strong survive, I think the expression is. Yeah, and I think I think yeah, I think it's needed from that. Right, right. Well, that's it. It has been an interesting discussion in the newsroom, and definitely a good summation there. Thank you for that. So, before we go to listener questions, one more topic I want to discuss this week: Silicon Valley was rocked by a big personnel announcement. Sheryl Sandberg is leaving Facebook after I think fourteen years. She's going to stay on the company's board, but she's stepping down as chief operating officer. So is this a big problem for Facebook? Is this um, business as usual as people come and go in the Valley? What does it mean for the company? And what happens next? Yeah, so I I don't think it's business as usual just because Sheryl Sandberg had been at Facebook for so long. She was one of those examples of kind of the adults. She became one of those adults in the room that some of the growing, that most of the, the bigger companies today needed, right? Kind of the Eric Schmidt. Um, type person that, that Google had in its earlier years. Um, and so I don't think it's business as usual from that perspective. It's a big deal. Um, that said, the most surprising thing here is probably how long Sheryl uh, Sandberg stayed at the company, given all of the controversies. And, you know, we don't quite know exactly what the relationship had become like between Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. They had nice, they both had very nice things to say about each other in their parting um, comments. <laughs> on Facebook mostly last last night. Um, but you know, I think um, so I don't think it's significant really probably for the for the for the company right now. One thing that I would take away from it is just in reading Mark Zuckerberg's farewell post last night, it, it seemed like it was as much a re- an opportunity for him to reorganize the, sh- the leadership structure as it was a farewell note. He really went into a lot of detail about how they were going to change the organization going forward. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that in his note, one of the things he said was that he wouldn't try to replace her because she's a superstar and not replaceable. And he said something like, even if we could, it's gotten to the Meta's reached the point, he wrote, where it makes sense for our product and business groups to be more closely integrated. So I think that's interesting, product and business to be more closely integrated. And, you know, I guess I would read from that. What does that mean for their efforts in this metaverse? He wants those the metaverse product to be speaking more closely for how they're going to turn that into a, how they're going to monetize the metaverse, which, which right now no one understands. So I think this is, my takeaway would be that this, you know, Zuckerberg is going all in on the metaverse. This pivot is, is happening. And despite how poorly the stock has done in the last year, he is not pulling back on that, on that effort. And we should we should reiterate that Sheryl Sandberg is not leaving Meta's metaverse. She's still going to be on the board. So yeah, there's so some, some connection there. 
Yeah, right. I think, right. We'll see how long that lasts. But yeah. Right. All right. You're being a cynic now. <laughs> we'll well, see. You know, it, it, often you see these examples of, of they use the, 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 they use the board as sort of a transition, right? And then that's true. That's true. Yeah. The board, but we'll see. I mean, maybe not. All right, let's move on to some questions. We've got some good ones today. Pankaj asks, what do you think would be the effect of regulation in Europe on tech stocks in America? Yeah, right. And this is a, it's a great question. It's one we've talked about, we keep thinking about. I mean, I, until the, I don't think the efforts in Europe are new. Um, and so I wouldn't put them, I don't think they're tied to the sell-off in tech. Tech was doing fine when Europe was ignoring the regulations, ignoring it. Certainly, investors certainly investors were ignoring it. I do think Europe will continue to push the envelope and to some degree, as they did with their GDPR regulations, tech companies even universally had to then almost adopt those best practices that Europe laid out on privacy and other issues. Uh, so I think Europe will continue to take the lead there. Tech will continue to have to respond to some degree. But really, the question is going to be, and, it's, and still is, can Congress ever come together to regulate tech in, in a more kind of broader, coherent way? Um, and, you know, I don't think, I, I still don't think we know. The midterms may go a long way toward deciding that. But if we get what kind of the conventional wisdom now of a Republican Congress, for two years at least, you're then still going to have Joe Biden in the White House, which means you're most likely not going to get you know, if he doesn't approve of, of that legislation, he's not going to sign it. There is, there are bipartisan, um, you know, there is bipartisan agreement out there, though, that tech needs to be regulated. So um, I still think, I think that's in the numbers, that's in the expectations already at this point for technology. I also think it's worth wondering whether this sell-off, um, complicates matters. I mean, how quickly is Congress going to start regulating these big companies that have been hurt and have seen their values fall 30 to 50%? Are they going to be willing to step in and regulate um, regulate them? Uh, you know, I, I think it maybe complicates the picture. Well, I think a lot of it has been spilled on the subject of tech regulation. So far, there hasn't been anything major, and the stocks have pretty much ignored it. Yeah, yeah, no, right. So we have a couple of questions regarding the performance of tech stocks. Chrisman asks, with the current trend, stock prices discounted to around 20 to 30%, meaning they've fallen about 20 to 30%. Do we know that we're already at a rock bottom level? Is now time to buy? And I think we discussed that a little bit before, but it's worth looking at again. Laura asks in a related vein, if it looks like tech is finished, how are we going to face the fact that our portfolios are full of these tech companies. And she sends regards from Argentina and we send regards right back. Nice. Thanks for tuning in from Argentina. Nice. So what do you think about all this? People have a lot of tech stocks in their portfolios. The stocks are down a lot. Is it time to buy? Is it time to sell? Yeah. Well, so um, certainly your downside looks less um, if you buy tech now than it did a few months ago, that's that's sort of just, that's me stating the obvious. Um, in terms of if tech is over, what does it mean for our portfolios? I mean, I guess one, well, two things on that. One is that we've seen 
as tech has got, gotten hurt, it, it, it's waiting in the S&P has fallen to some degree. Obviously, energy is now a bigger part of the S&P than it was just uh, a few months ago. Um, so you're sort of less weighted to, if you buy today, you're a little less weighted to tech, at least in the broader market than you were. I don't think tech is finished. Uh, that kind of gets back to the question we had before about the pace of innovation. Um, but I think this growth at any cost, high multiple uh, tech stock success may be finished for, for a good while. And so that means just if you're going to buy, I think you focus on companies with PE multiples. I mean, if I'm just going to pick a number, certainly not above 30. And, um, you know, you look for the things that are even below the market multiple right now. And, and at last I looked at, I, mean, I think Alphabet is one of those names. Um, Alphabet has its own issues. Advertising is definitely going to get hurt if we have a recession. But I don't know. It feels like you probably can't go wrong buying Alphabet at sort of a market or market multiple or a less than market multiple. That makes sense. We had a question from Prem about other types of stocks, though. Some software companies such as Workday and Atlassian seem to have durable growth and low customer churn. Two good things. Valuations are still very high relative to revenue. How do you see such companies holding up their growth in the next six to 12 months, particularly with Fed, tighter Fed policies playing out? These stocks yeah. don't seem to have been hit quite as much as some yeah. others. I think that I think Prem sort of does answer the his own question to some degree in the sense that the Fed's tighter policies are not going to play well with these very high multiple names, um, probably regardless of growth right now. So I, I just, you know, I'm not an expert on on Workday or at La, or Atlassian, but I just think you've got to look at the multiples and and these companies both still just look so expensive, um, and I think it makes more sense to probably, at least right now, find companies that still play in the software space, but that don't cost you nearly as much on a kind of dollar dollar to, or dollar to earnings basis. So we've got time for one more. Ian asks, why does Micron continue to trade at a low multiple considering the growth in AI, EVs, and memory demand? And since this has been a favorite stock of our colleague, Eric Savitz, maybe you can update listeners regarding Eric's view. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think it's one that Eric has mentioned several times in Barron's, uh, his column, Tech Trader column over the last year, Micron is dirt cheap and there's no other way to kind of say it. The company for years has been caught up in this, the fact that that DRAM and flash memory, which they make, has just been kind of seen as a commodity. And, and so they have to lower costs faster than the prices uh, for, for memory fall. And that's kind of the game they play. But it seems like they've gotten almost like oil companies to some degree, you know, which have gotten religion over how they're pumping oil now. And that's certainly helped their profits and, and investors, uh, the appeal that they have to investors. I mean, I think Micron has tried to do something similar where it's um, it's gotten a little bit more serious about maintaining and keeping capacity um, lower and, and not chasing all the growth with extra overcapacity. So that that should be good news. And then, um, as you know, I, I think Ian points out, they are in every big area right now. Um, All the hot ones. Including, including electric vehicles, which require more computing power inside the consoles. And therefore, they that means they need more memory. They're in every smartphone, as we know. I mean, it, it seems... Um, 
it's it, and it's and it's cheap. I mean, I, I don't five or six times earnings. If we want to find a cheap stock, it's one of the cheapest stocks in, in the market right now. So, you know, the, I guess the pushback is well, but they've always been cheap. So that's true. But you know, the stock could go from five times to eight times or six times to ten times, and you would do pretty well if earnings hold up. Well, we've talked a lot about about a lot of cheap stocks today, a lot of expensive stocks. I want to know what your dog thinks about all these stocks. And oh, I'll, I'll get back to you on that one for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in today. We actually have two sign-off announcements today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, we'll be discussing the darker side of money, how to think like a fraudster. It's not as sinister as you might think. Market Watch financial crime reporter Lucas Alpert joined Steve Goddard, a fraud prevention expert at anti-money laundering consultancy Feature Space, to discuss how financial institutions and investors should think like fraudsters to better detect scams and avoid getting ripped off. Second item, Barron's Investing in Tech Conference will return on Thursday, June 23rd as a virtual summit. We're bringing together a lot of newsmakers and moneymakers who make the tech world turn. And we hope you'll join us for a great day of interviews with technology leaders, including the legendary venture capitalist John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins, Arvind Krishna, the chairman and CEO of IBM, and Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom. We've put together a link to the registration form in the chat function. Alex and I are both going to be participating in investing in tech along with the rest of the Barron's tech team. And it should be a wonderful conference and a great day. I hope you'll be able to join us. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.